Welcome back to another episode of the Reformation Red Pill Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Hames, and I am joined in the studio again with Mr. Pete Hegseth. If you'll enter, give you a quick intro for anyone who might be popping in on part two of our series. Well, hope you watched part one. Joshua, thanks for having me again. Uh, follower of Christ, father of seven, married to uh, my lovely bride. Jennifer, I, I, my day job is at the Fox News Channel uh, and have had it where I try to use that platform to glorify God and fight for things that matter. And author of this book with David Goodwin called Battle for the American Mind, which is meant to, which was a, a discovery for me as a father and right. a parent. Um, and I, thankfully has been impactful uh, for a lot of people in realizing how deep our problem is in K through 12 education and the options that people's ha- people have. Which is what we will be getting into today is the history of that problem. So for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, perhaps, I encourage you to press pause, go back to episode one and watch that first, because really we are, we've got a three part series going on here. The first part was the depth of the problem in our educational system. And today we're covering the history of the problem, or as you say in the book, the unauthorized history of American education, Right, which I love that. Uh, it's By the way, one other thing I'll say in between episodes, don't just hit pause and go back to, to episode number one. Hit pause and go ba- back and watch the Reformation Red Pill podcast. Come on. Because I've arrived here at episode two as a new fanboy of the oh, podcast. Oh, nice. I love that. I Since, love that. I mean, I realized last time we had this conversation. I mm. I know you guys. I know Pastor Brooks, yeah. uh, Robert, everybody. Uh-huh. I got to watch this stuff. And so I watched an episode a day for the last, you know, 10 days or yeah. whatever. It's really good. Come on. Great, great work. Amazing, amazingly, just a... Uh, edifying as as a Christian who wants to learn and know more, more recently sort of still swallowing the reformed red pill. As yeah, a lot yeah. of people are at different places on the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing resource. So I appreciate, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm going to watch all the episodes going forward. And if you're watching it now, check it out. You you will definitely learn something. Man, I that's huge. I've been so encouraged by the feedback I've gotten because we, we didn't know what we, we're just kind of, we, we believe this needs to get out. So we're just going to do it, you know? Yep. And uh, so, and the feedback we've gotten has been so stellar from a lot of you viewers out there, and that that means a ton coming from you, Pete. So, thank you for that. Yeah. So go back, watch all the episodes, and go like, subscribe, and just so you know, we have a Patreon for those of you who want to put your dollars to good use. This is good use. I'm telling you, we've built out the studio in my garage. We've got a lot of projects we want to do. So we've had several people joining our Patreon. Thank you guys so much. But hey, if if you don't have the money right now or you don't want to spend it on that right now, just share it. Share it with a friend. Talk to someone about it. We're very much word of mouth kind of spreading right now. So you guys supporting us in that way is a huge deal. It's free for you. So that's my plug for the Reformation Red Pill podcast. And we are with that, we're going to jump in to this week's episode, which, as I said, is going to cover the, the unauthorized history of American education, part two of your book, Um, The Battle for the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. And uh, in preparation for this podcast, this is like time three of me reading this book. Can you hold up that book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never seen a book more well-tabbed. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, like Gandalf going through the old books. Well done, well done. The Ring, just making notes and everything (laughs) like that. Yeah, I wanted to be very well-prepared for the interview. I appreciate that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Um, that's funny. You weren't trying to plug your book. You were trying to plug my kind of insanity. No, I'm trying to point out. I will tell you this. 
any author appreciate the well, thing you appreciate most is when people engage with the content. Mm. And so mm. I, I say that out of a heart of gratitude yeah. and uh, same thing for my co-author, David Goodwin, I'm going to see him in a few weeks. Uh, this book does, I want to start every episode without the disclaimer of this book does not happen without yeah. him. Yeah. It was a full providential partnership. And so uh, I re reread a lot of this too, because some of it was newer to me when we were writing it, because it was stuff that David was well steeped in. And we sort of, we cross pollinated yeah. in, a, in, a, in yeah. a way that uh, was very beneficial, I think. Man, I love that. So before we actually jump into the content of uh, part two of this book, um, getting into the history of the problem in our education system, I want to remind you of what our goal is for this podcast episode, or for the series, rather. Um, and it is, number one, that you would understand uh, that our government school system has been one of Satan's greatest tools for excising Christianity from our country. So we want you to understand that, that we're going to get into the history and we don't, you know, we're, we're not, we don't not, nowhere in the book does it say the devil made him do it, but the devil made him do it. Like that really is, this is, uh, this is anti-Christ. And uh, so that's, that's the first thing. And the, se the second thing is I want you to understand that it is your duty as a parent to give your child a Christian education. Now, some people may not, it just may not be in the cards for sending them to a classical Christian school. I understand that. Um, at this point in my life, my kid, you know, he's not of age yet, but I, don't, I don't have, wouldn't have the finances to do that. So my wife and I would make whatever sacrifices necessary to homeschool. We we're saving up and doing everything we can right now to send our kids to a classical Christian school. But homeschooling is a great option as well. There's Absolutely. some great curriculum Absolutely. out there. Um, yeah, and so, but regardless, it must, it's a Christian education that they need. Like you said, we talked about in the first episode, 16,000 hours. That's incredible amount of time to send to someone else to, that's what they're doing is they're discipling your children, Right. That's what education is. And this middle section is meant to sort of further pound home the reality of the state of government-run schools. Right. And you can talk about the progressive politics of it, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, we recognize that. But once you dig out the history, they don't want you to know. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called the unauthorized history of yeah. American education. They don't want you to know this. They've intentionally buried it. Once they were successful, like anything else, they mm -hmm. covered their tracks. Yep. And so that parents wouldn't find out. And good Christians of yesteryear wouldn't even realize that yes. what they were teaching was progressive. Mm -hmm. And so we try to sort of unearth as much as we can to further make that case, as, as I said last uh, time too, the first step to recovery is understanding the depth of your problem. Absolutely. And we are all, we're all guilty of it at some level, except mm -hmm. for a precious few who understood this decades ago. Thank, thank God for them. Thank God for them, yes. Uh, and they're starting our comeback, but it starts with how did they do it? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got, um, like I said, to understand that, that Satan has been using government schools as a way to, uh, yeah, indoctrinate children for and, and, and pull them away from Christianity and from Christ. And then number two, that is your responsibility as Christians to give your children a Christian education and, uh, um, and to not do so, as, as I said on the last podcast, is tantamount to sin against God. That is your number one responsibility. And, and the thing is, as I said, and I want to make clear, um, many people sin out of ignorance, and the hope for this is to give you the information to show you that it is worse than you thought, and, the, and the, it is not a viable solution moving forward to just 
status quo, leave our kids in the government indoctrination camps. It just cannot be. And so we're in the spreading awareness phase. We get into that in the solution phase, which is really exciting. So that's number two. And number three, I really want to, like I told, uh, like I said last week, that I was radicalized by this. Like very seriously, people need to know about this. People need to understand this. And I want you to feel that same sense of urgency. Um, Yeah, if we don't change course, we are in the waning days of the American empire. That's no just doubt. it. You know, that's no just the way it is. And so those are the three things I want to drive home in these, in this episode. One of the things our founders will say in, is, is a Republic is not sustainable without uh, people that understand what Absolutely. was educated through classical Christian and Western Christian paideia. So our founders would look at our education system right now and say, your country is gone. Mm. Uh, and part of what we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we'll jump right on into the first section um, of part two. And chapter four, you titled The Story of the Progressive Heist. So uh, I guess I'll open it up as kind of an introduction. If you want to give a brief outline, what does that mean, the the progressive heist? What uh, Was it... Was it the secret undercover co-op kind of thing, or was it out in the open? What was going on? It with was this? both. Okay, uh, a yeah. lot of it was out in the open because they part of uh, David's phenomenal research on this was diving into the episodes of the New Republic and others where they talked openly that that removing God was central. Mm. Uh, and what we what we reveal in this chapter is sort of how they did it. And the chapter starts with the idea of a of a heist mm-hmm. of a of a, a, a precious artifact. And, and the idea is if you're going to remove God, you need to replace something on that pressure plate. Mm-hmm. Think of Indiana Jones that, that doesn't set off the alarm bell so the bamboo arrows don't come out and kill you as yeah. you're trying to steal the precious jewel. Uh-huh. And, and so they very carefully crafted through the use of public schools, and you meet the early uh, uh, apologists or early advocates for it, uh, a sort of a nationalism, a mm. love of state that replaced that. But what what you realize about the progressive heists is it's not like it was just a bunch of Democrats or a bunch of liberals who decided to do this. We did it to ourselves mm. as well. So the further you go in, you realize it was complacency of Christians and frankly, some of the some of the um, unsure footing even of our founding right. that created some of the cracks in the foundation. So how far back? So what, this whole section is really we're going to be going through the history of it. How far back? Does this? When did this heist begin? I guess. Well, I'm thinking earnest in the middle of the middle to late 19th century. Okay. You effectively had the Western. We talked about the Western Christian paideia last episode. What that was. So I'm not going to belabor that. Go back and watch. That. Well, maybe just give a quick definition for anyone who refuses to go back and watch. Distinctively Western. Yeah. Distinctively Christian, uh, and the paideia is sort of the the vision of the good life or who you believe you are, how you educate your youngest. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the waters and culturally in which you swim. Who are we? What do we value? What Mm -hmm. are our virtues? And every culture and country has a paideia that defines them. Mm -hmm. It's a Greek word that doesn't have a direct translation. But paideia is usually what's implanted on the heart of our youngest. And we lived with a Western Christian paideia for the first 150 years of our country. Mm -hmm. And so our, our churches, our education systems, our cultural institutions all more or less reflected that until... Groups of progressives intentionally started to target it. And that's where you saw the movement of Marx, the movement of Nietzsche, the movement of others, those ideas starting to make their way here. We already had some vulnerabilities to that yep. that go all the way back to the Enlightenment. Right. Uh, and, and ideas that our founders were aware of and dabbled in a little bit, yep. which created vulnerabilities for us. But m- more or less, it's a sort of middle to late 19th century phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. That So 
and we'll get into this as we go on in the chapter, but so basically from our founding, and you make this point and we'll get into that, the fact that we were distinctively like America is the result. It's the climax of the WCP of the Western Christian Paideia. However, as you just framed out, which the way you said it is really good that because our, the founders were not, uh, they had begun to dabble in the dark arts of uh, enlightenment thinking. And so there was a mix of Christian, Western Christian paideia, and then kind of this Trojan horse of enlightenment thinking that had gotten in, but wasn't, hadn't taken over the ethos yet, right? It was ideas that were um, kind of ruminating and they were combining with, and they were almost like still on the outskirts and hadn't made it to the, mm-hmm. hadn't made it. Well, you might say that they're elite ideas. Yeah. It's just like what you would see in our Ivy Leagues today. There's mm-hmm. perme 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you heard these permeating ideas of 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 critical theory uh-huh. or permeating ideas of gender as a social construct mm-hmm. or permeating ideas of reparations. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, that's never going to happen. Right. But the, the elites are chattering about it because eventually they want to push it through the institutions that they control. Yeah. And so a lot of those... Uh, ideas eventually made their way into the elites of our time, of our country. Uh, mm-hmm. These are things that Jefferson and and uh, uh, a number of our founders, I mean, Jefferson had his own Bible. Yeah. Uh, Jefferson, yeah. Which, where he pulled all the spiritual, the divinity of Christ out of uh-huh. it and took the parts of the gospel that he sort of liked or right. made sense. And these are, it's not to say that Jefferson's a bad guy. It's just things like deism mm-hmm. became a part of kind of the elite view of, um, Christianity or mm-hmm. quasi Christianity, right. which then made their way into the thinking of the founding of the country. Yeah, and we mentioned that uh, that Schaeferian idea. The it probably doesn't originate with him, but the kind of the the river of ideas where it starts and the, the philosophy and the Ivy League and and then it flows down into the art and then into the people. So it takes time to go from the elite Ivy League schools, but then. However many years later, depending on how accelerated the process is, then it gets down into the general public. You know, writing this book, I mean, I, I it is such a revelation of my own ignorance mm. uh, working with David on it. Because I not only did I, I went to Princeton, I was a political philosophy major at Princeton. <laughs> I was, I mean, yeah. politics with an emphasis on philosophy. And most of who we studied was Engels and Marx and Hume. And I mean, mm-hmm. it was all sort of enlightenment, progressive. Yeah. It was... And here's the thing. I didn't understand. I was behind one of the philosophers that we studied a lot was, I can't remember his name at this point. We talked about the veil of ignorance. It was basically, everyone was trying to rediscover the golden rule uh-huh. without acknowledging the golden <laughs> yeah, rule. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But, but I just sort of absorbed it for what it was because I hadn't yet, I, I didn't believe Marx and all that, but you're just sort of studying it yeah. outside the cultural context mm-hmm. of Western civilization because most of that is dismissed or minimized right. through your education. And so when you, when you look back at even the Middle Ages mm. and Christendom and the things that the founders understood about Charlemagne the Great, mm-hmm. about uh, Alfred. Alfred, all of those aren't studied. We don't understand no. how Christianity coalesced um, and then it led to the scholastic age. Right. You know, all of those the, are the medieval times. The those medieval are the dark times. ages. The scholastic age was led to the great universities that mm. were all founded on the pursuit of truth. Right. Biblical truth yeah. inside the kingdom of Christ. Mm. That's that's the, the history that we sort of 
went through for a thousand years that has been completely dismissed and become the Dark Ages. And yeah. that's what we were taught, the Dark we Ages. We were taught the Dark Ages. And, that, and this is a great uh, great time to pivot into this next section that you go to, go into, which is from kingdom Christianity to humanistic utopia. And uh, the thing that stood out to me as I was reading that was the fact that any captivating worldview any worldview or religious or religion or philosophy that can capture the masses will inherently have an eschatology it will Correct. be it will be filled out with uh, who are we why are we here where are we going right what is the end what is the t loss where are we going and uh and this progressive humanistic um this yeah this uh what what did you call it the basically the progressive version the of humanistic the humanistic utopia yeah yeah yes um they have a an eschatology absolutely everyone basically has an eschatology and uh and so why don't you break that down a little bit from kingdom christianity to humanistic well, utopia you know on 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 fox and friends uh, oftentimes i will say when we're saying we say the date of the show i'll say you know february 21st year of our lord 2024 and i, I always get people I. on twitter being like oh you're so why do you say well the re for for a thousand fifteen hundred seventeen hundred years up until mm. basically the 18 1800s that's how we, that's not just what we said, it's how we viewed ourselves right. in the kingdom of Christ. Christ was reigning over the world, and, and that reign of Christ is a reflection of, mm. of this kingdom. And even inside the words, even inside, so the progressives, the humanists, if your religion, if your eschatology is something else, someone else and something else has to reign. Mm -hmm. uh, even in the Bible, you see the reign of foreign leaders, the reign of Tiberi. Everything was understood in that they need. They knew that in order to remove the Western Christian paideia, something else had to reign and be more important. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's chipping away at that was the start of creating the opportunity for something else. Right. And so, and we as Christians, because we had uh, Christ reigning, we knew where we were going. We knew that what we were aiming at was Christ being King of the whole world. The, and full stop, that Christianity goes everywhere. The Great Commission says that all, he sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and to teach them obedience to Jesus' commands. And so that fueled the, the Christian church to go all over the entire world for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we knew where we were going. It was to disciple the whole world and to, and, and so we, we had this eschatological view that essentially was fueling us to bring the kingdom of heaven, as the Lord's Prayer teaches us, on earth as it, it is, is in heaven. heaven. Um, and that's where we were headed. And so, and that was powerful. But what I noticed and what I thought of when I was reading this was that it was really over the course of the last century, in a big way, the church uh, kind of took a novel, what's called, and we've talked about this on the couple episodes ago, but uh, a novel view of eschatology, which is um, the dispensational premillennial view, which had a hyper focus on the fact that they believe the world is getting worse. It's not going to get better. Christ is going to return to essentially chaos, and he's going to rescue his people out of that chaos. So it's kind of this retreatist. That was a good episode. It, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Yeah. It's all going to burn. And if you have, if the not to, if the Marxists have a definitive end or the humanists have a definitive end here on earth. Yes. But our eschatology is it's all going to burn. Yes. Then what's the reason for building? No reason. And I think I, I cannot 
stress. I, I, I think that the fact that um, dispensational premillennialism dominated the Western Christian. When did that start again? It really started in earnest in the with the uh, Darby's um, translation of the uh, what is it? Uh, but what ish? Yeah, it, uh, it's really started in earnest, probably the 30s and the 40s, 1930s, 1940s. It had crept in a little earlier than that, but it really became dispensational. It's sort of fertile ground for the like, well, it's not working out so well for us. Exactly. Well, I mean, you think of you've got the, the world wars happening yeah. and people going, there's no way the world is getting better. Right. Um, it must be getting worse. And so that's whenever the eschatological view that we argue for, which is postmillennialism, almost died out completely in during World War One and World War World War Two among theologians. It was like, oh no, this isn't getting better. Right. You kind of that's what I call uh, a newspaper eschatology, right? You instead of looking to scripture to determine what uh the outcome of our world is going to be what our eschatology is. We look at our newspaper and see the chaos and everything in the world mm-hmm. and say, no, it couldn't be. Um, so anyway, we, we, we formulated in the church this fatalistically negative and pessimistic view of how the world is going to work out. Meanwhile, the progressives are building a fundamentally optimistic I say that in air quotes, optimistic, because in our view, it's oh, absolutely, totally, and know? they're but they're looking at the religious wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to remember the context too. You've got Protestants and Catholics going to war with each right. other for right. sin, and they're looking at that and saying, "Well, religion is a the problem, right? And b, you know, it's a, it can be an opioid of the masses. Mm-hmm. So its its utility is to temper." And we can build a life here on earth without all that that Jesus stuff and exactly. kingdom stuff and Christ stuff. And a lot of it for the founders be, didn't become a rejection of uh, of of all religion. It became a rejection of the kingdom of Christ and ex, an acceptance of God. Mm-hmm. The idea that okay, we'll give you the fact that there's a God out there, right. but we're not going to fight over this the differences of what kind of kingdom Christ is going to establish. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it was a retreat historically uh, from a lot of the, 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 the fault lines that had created friction here on earth, which, which led to the opening for yeah. something like a humanistic utopia or deism. Man. And I, I, it's just so, you know, you can't redo anything in life. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to, to think as a, even a thought experiment, like what would it have been like had American Christians been utterly convinced that it is our duty to disciple this nation and that Christ's kingdom is inevitable. I'm talking about this post-millennial eschatology, that Christ's kingdom is inevitable and we must build and we must disciple this nation and and we've been given a promise, the Holy Spirit, that God's going to be with us, that Christ's going to be with us. Had we not said it's all going to get worse and just fatalistically gone that direction, what would things have looked like? Well, let me, let me push back on that just yeah. a little bit because put yourself in their shoes in 1760 or 1770. And in Maryland, you've got the Roman Catholics. And in Pennsylvania, you've got the Quakers. In New England, you've got the Puritans and the Congregational. Mm-hmm. In the Southern states, you've got the Presbyterians. And so they looked around at a very d- divided set of colonies and said, right. uh, well, uh, how, how do we put this group together? Because mm-hmm. this group mostly fled Europe because of persecution. Religious persecution. Religious persecution in their home countries. Right. Now they're here we realize we either you know join or die. Yeah. If we're going to join, what do we agree on? What is the unifying? Principle? We've been fighting religious wars for yeah. centuries and faced religious persecution. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a fair question to ask. Absolutely. But the founders are staring at this gangly group of different states, some of which had official state religions, mm-hmm. 
And they're saying, wow, we got to give them a degree around something. Right. And so what what did so it used to be in the very earliest days in the from the Mayflower in the Puritans, it was it was churches. That was that was the unifying Absolutely communal right. factor. Absolutely right. Right. Um, but then we've got this migration happening, right? This this immigration on a mass scale, different Protestant denominations coming, different religion, some Catholic, you know, every basically everyone Christian. Mm-hmm. So there's still that Christian ethos absolutely in the, right in the people absolutely right but there is uh, um, friction because of the different denominations the different viewpoints and so you're, you're saying that now the, the founders are now looking at all of that looking at that landscape and they're saying okay churches aren't going to be the unifying factor so what will be well in many ways it, it what will be is sort of a passive God and the idea of a New Jerusalem or a uh, like manifest a, a destiny, manifest destiny, yeah. sort of. And I, I love the part here that David pulled out. He said, when Benjamin Franklin proposed the first seal of the United States, he wanted an image of Moses bringing the sea upon Pharaoh or Jefferson wanted the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. The idea is they all saw America as a new order, mm. which is uh, utopian in its underlying assumptions. True. Not that the old, the old view was, you know, we live in the city of man governed by man's institutions, but the authority is of Christ's kingdom, right? The vision of the good life was in our desire as citizens to live to the glory of God and his kingdom. Mm. And you had kind of this utopian deist view that we were, we had a new land and a new nation mm -hmm. and a new opportunity that, that was more or less Christian in its general thrust mm -hmm. and did, did manifest in individual freedom and individual liberties and religious, religious freedom, but wasn't the, they argued no longer needed a Christian kingdom or the symbol of a cross, but a new order under a generic God vested in a nation mm -hmm. based on new ideas. So it became mm -hmm. more about a, a, a nation on earth, mm -hmm. which bestowed freedoms and protected those freedoms from a tyrannical king, yep. as opposed to a nation that reflected the truth of a kingdom. Mm. And those are subtle differences. You know, we look back in school and we say, hey, our founders were mostly Christians. I mean, mm. how many times have you read, um, you know, you read books by David Barton or others who are wonderful and they make an amazing case about the Christian roots of our country. Mm -hmm. They also acknowledge a lot of the tensions here yes, yeah. that are there. And so you you can oversimplify by saying America was simply a Christian nation and here's how it worked. Right. Uh, there were conflicts there too. And, and what we argue is not that everything about the founding of America was a poison tree, sure. but that there were the seeds there for the openings of the another Trojan agenda. The Trojan horse was there. It the was Trojan in. horse was there, yeah. some of it out of, out of utility mm -hmm. of the founders who realized they couldn't do maybe precisely what they wanted. Your, your Patrick Henry's and your John Jay's and your Samuel Adams, mm -hmm. your, your stout Christians mm -hmm. uh, who also recognize, okay, we're getting what we can, but the flicker of progressive thought was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in, in that section that even that you were just quoting, um, deism foreshadowed progressivism. How would you make that connection? Um, was because like, like you're saying, it's so easy to think that it's so easy to fall into that trap of simplicity, black and white answers, right? Where it's like our, our Nate on Twitter, this is what it looks like. Our nation was a Christian nation. No, -uh, they were all deists, you know, like back and forth. And so, and so I, how would you make that connection between, um, how, how was deism like a foreshadowing of the yeah, progressive? They weren't all deists. They were mostly Christians. Yeah. Mostly Bible believing Christ centered Christians mm -hmm. from different denominations yeah. who believed that. Um, now there were, but the problem with deism is it was as much a 
sort of ideological view as mm-hmm. it was a as a Christian view. So with deism, what you're what oftentimes you're challenging is the divinity of Christ, the authority of Scripture. Uh, you know that's what you see from the Jeffersonian views. I like the. I like the general thrust of Jesus right, and right. what he, he's a wonderful teacher, prophet, mm-hmm. but certainly not God on earth yeah, or yeah. the triune God or all of these things. We can set all that aside and agree mostly on what Jesus has to say mm-hmm. and then learn from the sins of Europe and try to create a governing system that protects the religious freedom of individuals, regardless of what they believe, to include deists. Mm. So it becomes this ideological catch-all view that means what it says is, Christianity properly understood has a place here, lives mm-hmm. here, is central to who yeah. America is, but not just that. Right. Not right. just that. There's there's room for really anything, which makes its way all the way now to the you know Iowa State Capitol of a of a Satan statue where the guy that knocks it over is now being charged of a ha- what a hate crime of a hate crime a hate crime. I'm not I'm not I drawing that devil. direct line, but the idea is this is an umbrella of religious freedom and mm-hmm. and and certainly that. It's a very different environment, much more Christian, Western Christian then. But it's that flicker that we're talking yeah. about that creates an opportunity for the passive God to be filled with other beliefs yeah. other than what's biblical. Mm. Well, so then moving on to the next little section here on uh, the early phases of mm-hmm. this progressive heist. Progressives make school mandatory. Um, that... That was pretty enlightening, uh, be, beginning with that journey. We've, we've got, you mentioned the guy, uh, Horace Mann. Yep. Father, uh, well, in fact, I'll let you just explain that a little bit. What was that, uh, how was that a part of the progressive well, he's heist? A, he's a father of, he would he would argue, Horace Mann and his his devotees would say, well, his, his view wasn't decidedly progressive. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably fair to say he wasn't necessarily ideologically completely progressive. Mm-hmm. It, wait for John Dewey to show up for a lot of that okay. agenda to arrive. Uh, this was a, a, a nationalistic purposes for man. He's looking, he's looking around at the country, saying we're all we're a nation, but we're disparate. Yeah, and I'm, I want to create a. And there's certain churches that do it well, and certain that don't. I want to create a national school system and school districts uh, out of the German system. You get the word kindergarten from man's German, a, a, a child's garden. Right. And so there were there were there was a. You're also moving into the industrial age. You're moving into a a, a, a different age, and so. There's a utility that he and Dewey argue for this type of education, but this is also the incubation of the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So you've got Kant and 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 Hegel and Marx and Nietzsche and all these other views, German ruminating in Germany, and a guy like Mann says, "Well, we should be doing that here." It's always what it is. Why aren't we doing it here? We're these backwoods rubes here in America. Mm. There's an opportunity to induce introduce a lot of this, and you can't introduce it. Uh, unless you create that system. And by the way, education wasn't mandatory. There's there's the idea of um, compulsory education laws mm-hmm. was a progressive view because most families were educated their kids either in the home mm-hmm. or through the church. Yeah. And once you start making things compulsory, what happens? The state takes over. Right. Which was the goal of man and the goal of Dewey is to pull it out of the um, sort of the understood responsibility of churches mm-hmm. and and because some kids are falling through the cracks yep. and make it mandatory. And then when you make it mandatory, you can assert the arm of the state. Absolutely. And so then states start to say, well, we need to, we need to form schools and school districts in order to make sure every kid is funded or every kid is educated. And the system sort of starts building momentum that way. And I mean, these, these, this is the seedlings of government tyranny 
um, in, in, in tiny format in little, in little seedling form, right? Because as we talked about last episode, the way God has ordered the world, he's ordered the world with, uh, and we talked about the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. We've got these three spheres of authority that God has ordered the world with, um, the state he, he has ordered the world in such a way that the state really does have authorities, particularly the authority of the sword to execute, uh, uh, justice yep. on evildoers. Right, and its tool that God has given Romans thirteen is a sword. So, basically, everything the government does is at sword point. Now we would say at gunpoint. Everything that is made compulsory. If you reject enough times, you are at gunpoint. Sure, behind whatever. Sure, you know what I mean. Um, and uh, and what what man and Dewey are attempting to do, though they may have not put it this way, is they want to inflate that sphere of the state to encompass all the rest. No doubt. So we as Christians say there's these three spheres that they touch, they overlap in little places here and there, but by and large, the authority of the home is given to the father, the authority of the church is given to the elders, and the authority of the, the state is given to the civil magistrates. Yes. And uh, um, we as Christians say, uh, along, I say along with Kuiper, um, Abraham Kuiper, that incredible quote, that gets quoted a lot, but uh, there's not a square inch of the entire universe but that which Christ does not cry mine, mine. right? Yep. And so uh, we believe Christ is over all three spheres, but what these guys want is that state sphere to inflate and to the point where it takes over the other ones, and then they don't want to acknowledge Christ. They can acknowledge a deistic God— but they don't want the Christ and his word. Absolutely. At yeah. first, though, they knew they couldn't do that. Right. And that's why conservatives still to this day say, well, education is a local, state and local function. Mm. Yes, the idea is that it was supposed to be state and local. Of yeah. course, that's all since gone. I mm. mean, yeah, you can have a slightly different school board. All the, but back in when this first started, local school boards had did have control. Mm. And by the way, the Bible was freely taught. And we, that's why we put it in italicis here on this page. Until the past century, meaning the past 100 years, the Holy Bible was freely taught in American schools. Mm-hmm. And that's why we put that in italics in this book. Yeah. You, the idea of the, whole, the Bible being in a public school, mm-hmm. I, I, a lawmaker in Mississippi just dropped a bill that, uh, I don't know where it'll go, but that, would, that mandated a Bible in every, it mandated a Bible in every public schoolroom in that. Mississippi. Love I that. love it. I love, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Yeah. It, the idea of a bill that would mandate the Bible 100 years ago would have been mind-blowing. Yeah. Because 100 years ago, it's how kids learn to read, to read. in most schools, yeah. publicly funded schools in America. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not as if this is a system we've totally flipped on its head, and it started with the small stuff of, well, it's compulsory. Mm-hmm. And then the schoolmaster supplanted the church and the parents, to your point. Mm. The schoolmaster said, well, we're taking control, and the church is backed out. Mm-hmm. And eventually the church got out of the school business, and the church got into the Sunday school business. That's right. And the left said, bingo, now we got them right where we want them. We got you five, your kids five days, you get them one day. Exactly. And That's a deal. This is... but. It starts with the utility of it. We need the utility of more more influence so that no kids fall through the crack and there's this new education and the Bible doesn't quite cut it and there's new philosophies from Europe. It's always these sort of seemingly good ideas or good intentions mm-hmm. that once they take root, other agendas pop up. Right. It, what, what struck me as I, as I was reading through that section was that this guy, Horace Mann, succeeded in making public school mandatory in Massachusetts in 1852. And to me, I was like, this battle has been raging for nigh on 
170 years. Now, you wonder why Ma- Massachusetts is so nutty. They had a head start <laughs> on the rest of us. <laughs> they had a head start. They had a head start. And so we'll move on to this next section here on page 75 with the Progressive School Project builds a God-free paideia. So that's what they're aiming at, right? We have, they know there's a WCP. They yeah. know there's a Western yep. Western Christian paideia. And so uh, we'll say the elites know that and they don't want that. They want to build their Christless humanistic utopia that is unbound and unfettered from the truth of God's word. Yep. And so now they're actively ins- attempting to build a God-free paideia. So what does that look like? Um, it starts, like, like, like we said, with the, with the mandatory public schools. What's next on the agenda, as it were? Well, you need your, you need your symbols, right? Uh-huh. So uh, if you're going to take the cross and the Bible out of, of government schools or out of schools in America, and you're, you're, doing, you're creating this heist, you have to replace them with something else. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the example that we, I mean, this blew my mind when we were doing the, the example uh, we, we cite here amongst others is the Pledge of Allegiance uh, mm-hmm. brought, it was, we think of the Pledge of, when I talked in one of my books five years ago, I said, you get the pledge in your school, get the pledge in your, and, and you realize what a superficial answer that is to all the problems. <laughs> and in actuality, it's playing right into the hands of the progressives. Mm. Because the original Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892 mm. by Francis Bellamy. Mm-hmm. He was a socialist minister. Uh, and his view was to create a pledge that would create a more nationalistic, state-based reverence mm-hmm. in our country. We think of the pledge in Under God. The original pledge did not include Under God. Mm. That was added by Eisenhower in the 50s. And the idea was instead of the Lord's Prayer and the Bible and a cross, you had a new secular pledge Mm -hmm. and a flag, things that Americans could agree on because, you know, we're proud of our country. We're proud of our founding. We we haven't yet decided it's a bad place. Yeah. And but it's an intentional project to insert these. Th- the original Bellamy salute had a very unfortunate salute too. Mm. Uh, it was the Roman salute. I mean, they're rooted in history, mm-hmm. which looked exactly like the Nazi salute. Yeah, well, I would show you here, but we'd have to blur it out. Not doing it. Blur it out. Yeah, not doing it. Uh, <laughs> but it it. So after World War II, they changed the salute to the hand over the heart mm-hmm. uh, because it was it was untenable. But mm. the idea, it was, again, rooted in history a little bit, but meant to create allegiance to the state. And that's that's what they're trying to do, right? We, we talked just a second ago about how all these immigrants from different Christian backgrounds are immigrating to the United States and, they're, and, and are, the leaders are trying to figure out what is the unifying thread that gets them all together. Uh, and there's well, that's a utilitarian function to the whole thing too. Exactly. I mean, a, yeah. a historian would argue to say, well, just like the founders were trying to bring together different churches, how do you bring together all these new immigrant groups mm-hmm. that are coming to America? Some of which are not Christian, many mm-hmm. of which uh, don't speak the language. And so they would say, well, a practical, and that's a lot of what a, a Dewey would argue mm-hmm. is let's bring in the immigrants, assimilate them to American nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole Christianity thing might be something that's nice to do at your church and at home, but right. here in the school, we coalesce around America, 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 and then we get you a good paying job mm-hmm. so you can be a part of the American experiment. And and so at this point, you're not really seeding any agendas. Yeah. You're using utilitarian reasons or uh, basic economic reasons mm-hmm. that, that are, you know, music to the ears of parents that want that opportunity for kids. Yeah. Later on, you slip the agenda in. What's crazy to me as I think about that is how that maps, like how the progressives plan from 
100, 150 years ago maps onto it today with the same sort of view towards immigration, which is get as many people here from distinctly non-Christian or non-American backgrounds, get them here, don't require them to assimilate no. at all, right? And then that way we can, we can. they're still doing that. They're trying to uh, create their when we get into it later uh, in the chapter, but their progressive values as our unifying factor rather than Christianity. Well, one thing I'll add to that, though. At this moment, at this turn-of-the-century moment, the progressives look really reasonable. Mm -hmm. They don't look radical, mm -hmm. radical because there are literal Marxists and literal communists and literal, literal anarchists, you know, those are all blended together today. Yeah, they're blowing, they're blowing things up. They're yeah, yeah. assassinating people. Yeah. And so the progressives are like, oh, we're this, you know, more moderate group. We love the country. Uh -huh. We've got flags and anthems and right. all of these things. And mm -hmm. we're building this school system that will support the future of a country. And frankly, they would say that assimilates Americans. Mm -hmm. I think, you know. We did cultural assimilation a hundred years a ago. While. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, speak English, learn the basics, mm -hmm. salute the flag. You're in America. Yep, yep. Which uh, it's almost like looking back, it makes you wonder. Uh, Doug Wilson uh, mentions this in his book um, "Mere Mere Christendom," mm -hmm. and he he argues, and I think from a Christian perspective, I, I don't see a strong argument against it that we we really missed the opportunity at the very beginning uh, with not having a, not not making it our country distinctly Christian in the documents, like saying if we had a unifying, because it was so assumed by the founders that, you know, it was it James Madison that our, our country doesn't work apart from a, a religious. We've got, Christ, a, we got three people. pages worth of quotes yeah. that point out our founding generation pointing precisely to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, it was almost it almost seems like Christianity was just so embedded in the ethos of the American people that it's almost like it went without saying. But it's like now we look back and go, man, would it be great to have uh, the Apostles' Creed or like something like that in the a, a the at least the most basic generic I say generic the Apostles' Creed one of the most basic foundational Orthodox uh, Christian creeds that says like, hey we should have put in writing from the beginning that this was Christian. That's know? why the Declaration of Independence to me is so important mm -hmm. because at least, at least there is that overt yes. references to, you know, rights endowed by a creator. Right. Under, there, there's there's uh, rights and na nature's God and all of those aspects of the Declaration. What the left is tr tries to do in this book and elsewhere is divorce the declaration from the constitution. Right. So the constitution is purely a secular document mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and ignore the ethos of the declaration, which is we know exactly what God's place is yes. in all of this. Yes. And we fought an entire revolution based on this document. So for you to assume that the constitution means God's out, <laughs> uh, you know, it, you're the one deciding to misread yeah. what uh, this it, founding was about. It's so, uh, it's just to me, it's so obvious, like the play that's being run with that, you know, that they're, that, You've got the, that's what's so frustrating is you're calling this the unauthorized history. It really is. We've been given this, you know, like, like you say in the book, history is written by the victors and the progressive have been winning for the last century. So they're telling the history the way they want to tell it. And every single part of the history from the way they want to tell it. Yep. And this is, this is, 
you know, the, it was biased 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's out of control. So what you're seeing now is every white kid in, in, in class is inherently um, an oppressor mm-hmm. and needs to abide, you know, f- basically beg forgiveness for their guilt. Yeah. 50 years ago, it was, uh, it was lies. Uh, now it's insane. Now it's insane. Yeah. But it's, you have to understand yeah. the lies to get, to get a sense of how the insanity came about. Mm-hmm. And then you start to realize, well, th- that's why these institutions in many places are completely irredeemable. Right. Uh, you're not going to walk into a social studies class in your local public school and turn it all around because you're a conservative Republican with maybe a little different point of view. <laughs> Tell that to the guy that wrote the curriculum. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. all part of a hundred year process that leads us to today. And one of the things from this chapter that I think is, is the uh, story about prohibition and we I was to get just going to get to that. Gonna, okay, yeah. go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I, Cause that was incredibly important. That stood out like a buzzing red light to me. So go ahead and, and, and well, and, there's two Francis in this. There's Francis Bellamy who did the, uh, the, the pledge of allegiance and then Francis Willard. She was a, a suffragette, uh, and, and, and women's rights, women's temperance movement hated alcohol and the consumption of alcohol mm-hmm. and drunkenness, which, which is fine. Uh, ultimately, but this was a this was a country founded on not founded on, but like the consumption of alcohol was a pretty normal thing across yeah. the country. Everyone accepted it. A bunch of Irish Catholics, you know, no one's given that up. Yeah. She instilled a third grade curriculum in the 1870s mm-hmm. uh, across classrooms across America. And what happened? Uh, it was a very explicit anti alcohol curriculum starting in third grade in the 1870s. And what happened 40 years ago, a generation later, mm-hmm. you had a constitutional amendment yeah. prohibiting the sale and consumption of alcohol, prohibition. Prohibition didn't pop out out of nowhere. Right. It was the, it was the direct result of a s- education system that pushed a particular point of view that led to a cultural change and a political outcome. Man. And the progressives studied that and said, oh, so simp- one woman or a network of people with that view and one piece of curriculum changed the entire trajectory of a nation's yes. view on an issue. And they wrote openly in the New Republic about the efficacy of this effort. Mm-hmm. And that it's uh, the, the, the quote that, that David uses is the plasticity of the child. Like mm-hmm. you, you can mold the kid through what you teach and eventually you get a different form of voter. Yes. That was their goal. That, and that's what we're, that's paideia. They they are that's paideia. That's why they went to third grade, reshaping their affections. Good luck telling a sixteen year old who's already had their first beer. Yeah, you know that's right. You tell the third grader that mm-hmm. of all the things you should stop doing, mm-hmm. it's your your mom and your dad when they drink are bad, and if you drink, you're bad, and if anybody does it, they're bad, and you repeat that mm-hmm. enough, and they might be right at some level, yep. but you repeat that enough, and you don't really get it. You don't only get shaming, you get a constitutional amendment that changes the way that you operate. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, that the left right now is crying, uh, screaming in rage about the fact that we want to get books like Gender Queer and All Boys Aren't Blue out of schools because they know that if they can get those books to your children, they can shape them. No doubt. They can transform them in and, a very literal sense. And now. you know why she was able to do it so effectively is because there was a new, there was a newly installed common curriculum. Mm-hmm. 
And you wonder why that's always the obsession of Washington, D.C. Yes. We need a common curriculum because when states and localities have the options, you can't to think for themselves. Yes. You yeah. can't push one agenda. But when mm-hmm. the common core Man. is Woo. there, you can boom straight from the mind of Washington, D.C. into the classroom of your kids. Man. It's scary. Yeah. It is. It That is scary. But what what that speaks to is the fact that while uh, while American Christians were kind of living in this defeatist mentality, the progressives were thinking generationally. Yeah, like they were th- they were being patient. They were they were being committed to their utopian vision, their eschatological view, and they were watching it work out. There was a I don't think I brought this up last episode. There's a talk by Toby Sumter called uh, Oh, maybe I did bring this up last episode, but it was this talk. Um, he titled it, uh, Stop Giving Your Strength to Women. And uh, um, and it was from Proverbs 31. But he he laid out uh, this, th- how they have, they've been on this trajectory to deconstruct American Christianity, to deconstruct the American family unit, and to replace that with an allegiance to the state and uh, the allegiance to community, this neo-Marxist, communistic, uh, uh, virus has been has been present going all the way back to the early 1900s, but really took full force in the 1960s. And so they committed to it to the long march through the institutions. Right? They they said we know how to do this. We first infiltrate higher education, then we infiltrate lower education. They had already infiltrated lower education yeah. at that point, but then we go hard after lower education, which they've ramped up in the last 20 years. And so because they're thinking generationally, that's why we are where we're at right now. While Christians were just running up the credit cards waiting for Jesus to come back next Thursday. Yes. And while, and they did it with things we still revere to this day, Mm. the flag and the pledge. I mean, when I, that's the biggest thing that rocked me as someone who I wrote an entire book called American Crusade, which it's working title before that was affected was American nationalism. It was basically this civic religion view mm-hmm. that like America was special. We keep it special. We keep it strong. We keep it robust. We maintain its traditions. Of course, God is there, mm-hmm. but it was centered on American nationalism. Yeah. That's because I'm a product mm. of the system Man. that held America up like America was God. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> you're like, uh-oh. And listen, I love America. Yeah. It's it's my home and I will defend yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but when you hold up a nation as if a nation is God, you mm. have it completely upside down. Yeah. That's what the progressives wanted from the beginning. I mean, we revered Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was civil religion. Uh, we revere <laughs> these things. They're civil religion. And, and we appreciate them for what they are, but it was a tool. The pledge was a progressive tool. Oh, my God. The flag in front of the cr- classroom was a progressive tool. And now we define a good school by do they say the pledge? Man, you're right. right? I mean, it's, it is a mind bender, and it was for me. But once you see it, like we said, you can't unsee it. And yeah. it doesn't mean you can't be a patriot. It right. just means you need to be properly ordered. Get your affections ordered rightly. Get your rightly. affections ordered rightly, because right now, America is our highest affection in a lot of places. In the conservative they, circles especially. In conservative circles especially. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus they, is like the lucky rabbit's foot to our American— I love that yeah, way yeah, of putting it. Yeah. And that's exactly how the progressives want it. 
mm-hmm. because you can drive a truck through patriotism. Yeah. But you can't drive a, a truck through Jesus Christ. Woo! Come on. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So that's the the whole thing moves in that direction, Man. Uh, which is scary. Yeah, it's funny. You're writing uh, American Crusade and John Dewey is just sitting there wringing his Loving hands it. going, ha, Loving ha, it. Ha, ha, ha. If you write <laughs> you the know? book, I'm like, I'm writing this book for my kids. It's <laughs> like my manifesto of what I believe. Yeah, and then yeah. I'm like, Oh, I only got 70% of it right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need an annex to this yeah, book. That's good. And you got one. Yeah, got true. One. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Let's, let's move along to uh, this, this next part here with education in the Western Christian paideia you, you said is replaced with vocational training. So let me, uh, well, let me quote C.S. Lewis. Yeah, please. Uh, who in, in, uh, in 1939 wrote education is essentially for freemen, mm-hmm. for free men and vocational training for slaves. If education is beaten by training, civilization dies. Whew. So there, there's education and there's yeah. training. Yeah. And what do we, I mean, it, it, and let's take the modern equivalent to bring it to people's, uh, STEM is a great modern example of that. Science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and math, which we now want to be called STEAM. So they want to add arts in there because the artists feel left out. <laughs> there's always a new yeah, acronym, always, right? It's, always a new color to the flag. Abs never <laughs> stops. That's why they're successful. Never stops. Yeah. Uh, but that's the modern uh, equivalent of the vocational training that Dewey wanted to push. Why are we teaching this Latin stuff, mm. this this Bible stuff, yeah. this English literature, theology, the Greeks? What are they going to use that? What, what does yeah. a welder need to know that for? Right. And we're in the industrialized economy. We need to train skills. Mm. And in order to train skills, you have classrooms with rows of desks, the Prussian model. Mm. And, and you've got a fixed curriculum, and it's based on the things the experts tell us yeah. we need to know in order to be prepared for the future economy, except we never know what the future is going to be. So it's always yeah. wrong or always readjusting. But that, that was the... And that remains the progressive zeitgeist today mm-hmm. that vocational training is. And what C.S. Lewis would argue, what we would argue is, of course, we need welders, mm-hmm. but we need our wise welders. Yes. What we need is free thinking welders, just like we need we need free thinkers. And education is the cultivation of what is good and right and true and beautiful and wise, answering the bigger questions. Yeah. Where are we in that hierarchy? What is our relationship to God and our environment and, 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 and his created kingdom? And do we wanted nothing to do with that? Yeah. Just teach, teach, teach the training, and then give them a job. Man, I tell you, that that transformed me in college. Whenever I started reading the great books, whenever I started thinking, taking taking my philosophy, I went to a Christian college, so I had some I had some really good professors that put some really good material in front of me that had me kind of thinking through this. And it, I remember thinking to myself so many times, why, I I. I wondered why it seemed like my high school education was totally useless. <laughs> like by the time I got, I thought that so many times. I can remember thinking to myself, like, did I learn a, th- a, th- a thing? Like, I can't remember learning a thing. You know, I was like, it was just like, like teachers just all right, pass the pass the grade. You know, coach, you know, whatever, coach whatever of geometry is like okay, just do the thing, pass the grade, do whatever. Um, and I remember I, I made it through, I was like a B student, BC student, a, ABC. I was an ABC student, <laughs> all right? That's maze, you know, in gym, you know. Um, in gym, yes. Uh, but uh, but um, I made it all the way through high school, didn't fail out, didn't, you know. And I didn't I remember, I couldn't remember learning a thing. Um, then I get to college and then I really start following Christ and all of a sudden 
uh, my mind is just blown open with reading great works of literature and philosophy and I, and logic. I mentioned that on the last episode. How like the, I took my logic class and I was just like, why was I not taught this? Why would who who failed me here? <laughs> you know, and it goes back a century or more. You know, why would you take logic? You need to learn to type. You need to learn to type. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, home ec is another, I mean, home ec is like shop class. All of those things are great. Shop class is actually a lot more useful, but, but something like home ec. I remember taking home ec in junior high, like learning how to write a check and learning, like learning how to bake. It's like, well, those used to be things that we learned from your dad at home <laughs> yeah. from my mom or my dad. Yeah. Now the state is saying, no, we need to teach you these. We're tools. mom and dad. We're mom and dad yeah. now. That's right. That's right. Hello there, faithful viewer slash listener of the Reformation Red Pill podcast. This conversation with Pete, where we outline the history of the progressive takeover of the American education system, ended up being about a two hour long conversation. So we here at the Reformation Red Pill Podcast decided to split it up into two episodes. So if you want to catch the last half of the conversation with Pete and I, you're just going to have to tune in next week. And with that, dear brothers and sisters, I leave you with our weekly charge. May you build, defend, and expand the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. 